Chapter Sixteen of the Complete Works of Brand the Iconoclast, Volume One, by William Cowper Brand. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter Sixteen, Thomas Carlyle, of a recent edition of Carlyle's Heroes and Hero Worship. It is said that 100,000 copies are already sold. The work has been on the market many years, and this continued popularity is indeed encouraging. It argues that the taste for the legitimate, the sane in literature, has not yet been drowned in the septic sea of the fin de siècle slop, that despite the enervating influence of an all-pervasive sensationalism or sybaritism, there be still minds capable of relishing the rugged, strong enough to digest the mental pabulum furnished by a really masculine writer. Carlyle ranges like an archangel through the universe of intellect, overturning mountains to see how they are made, now cleaving the empyrean with strong and steady wing, now shearing clear down to the profoundest depths of Emer's well at the foundations of the world that his followers continue to increase argues well for the age for he is a man whom weaklings should avoid if they would not be sawed in twain by mountain chains forever lost in pathless limbos or drowned in the unmeasured deep even the strongest must perforce part company with him at times else follow with the eye of faith for his path oft leads up into that far region where mortals can scarce breathe, over Valpurgis's peaks, through bottomless chasms, and along the filmy edge of clouds. The admirers of Carlyle, may their tribe increase, are indignant because one Edmund Goss, in his introduction to the late edition of Heroes and Hero Worship, alludes to the line of modern literature as an undignified human being, growling like an ill-bred collie dog. They take Mr. Goss too seriously, dignify him with their displeasure. James Anthony Froude, a literary gun of much heavier caliber than Mr. Goss appears to us from this passing glimpse, once wrote, if I remember aright, in a similar vein of the grizzled sage, but the unkind critique has been forgotten and its author is fast following it into oblivion while the shade of carlyle looms ever larger towering already above the titans of his time reaching even to the shoulder of shakespeare goss who is this presumptuous fellow who would take carlyle in tutelage foist himself upon the attention of the public by making a peep-show of the great essayist's faults. There is, or was, a pugilist named Goss, or Goss, but as he did not deal foul blows to the dead, this must be a different breed of dogs. Sometime since, there lived a little Englishman named William Edmund, or Edmund William Goss, or Goss but i had hitherto supposed that becoming disgusted with himself he crawled off and died as i remember him he was a kind of half-baked potaster or hebelbull or johannes factotum in the province of dilettantism 
a universal smart aleck who knew less about more things than any other animal in England. He was one of those persistently pestiferous insects, tersely called by Carlyle, critic flies, a descendant of that placed by Aesop in St. Paul's Cupola. They presume to judge all things great and small by their half-inch vision. Take the measure of cathedrals and interpret to the world the meaning of brainy men. Unfortunately, the critic fly is confined to no one nation. Is what might be called in vigorous Texanese an all-pervading damn nuisance. Mounted upon a mole, pimple, or other cutaneous imperfection of an intellectual colossus, it complacently smooths its wings and explains, with a patronizing air, that the big un isn't half bad, but sagely adds that, had it been consulted, his two visible imperfections would have been eradicated. We dislike to see an insect leave its periods and semicolons on the immortal marble, but it were idle to grow angry with a goss. This must be the English literary exquisite whom Americans have hitherto incidentally heard bellowing before the tent of this or the other giant and taking tickets. I mean the prig, not the pug. He is comparatively youthful yet, and can on occasion digest a good dinner. Perchance, when he is well past fourscore, worn with long years of labor, compared with which the slavery of the Bagney were a blessing, and half dead with dyspepsia, he too will growl like a collie dog. But never a copper will the great world care whether he grumbles or grins. Should he even get hydrophobia, that fact would scarce become historic. The public marks and magnifies a great man's foibles, but forgets both the little fella and his faults. Jean Jean may hide from the battle in a hollow log, and none hear of it, but let a Demosthenes lose his shield and the world cackles over it for two and twenty centuries. To digress for a moment, I believe the story of Demosthenes's cowardice as damnable a lie as that relating to Colonel Ingersoll's surrender. Even in his day, human vermin sought to wreck with falsehood those they feared. The world, unwisely, I think, interests itself in the personality of a genius, and somewhat impudently invades his privacy. A young man may muster up sufficient moral courage to lie to his callers, and thus preserve the proprieties, but an aged valetudinarian who wants to get into a quiet nook and nurse himself may show scant courtesy, even brush the critic fly of the genus Gauss out the doors with a hickory broom. Carlyle belonged to the irritable race of poets, albeit he seldom imitated Pope's bad example and tortured his rugged ideas into oleaginous rhyme. There is a strange wild melody in all his work, what he would call harmony and discord, suggesting that supernervous temperament which is inseparable from the highest genius, and which degenerates so easily into acute neuroses, that madness to which wit is popularly supposed to be so near allied. Such natures are aeolian harps acted upon, not by viewless air, but by subtler, more impalpable power, which comes none know whence, and goes none know whither. 
one moment yielding soft melodies as of an angel's lute borne across sapphire seas the next wailing like some lost soul or shrieking like eumenides the self-poised the well-balanced man of whom you can safely predict what he will do under given conditions the man who never bitterly disappoints you and makes you weep for very pity of his weakness will never appall you by exhibition of his strength he may possess constructive talent but never that creative power which we call genius because it suggests the genii no man is a hero to his valet says the adage carlyle assumes this to be the fault of the latter due to the sawdust or other cheap filling in the head of the menial yet may not the valet be wiser in this matter than the world the hero the greatest genius is not always aflame with celestial fire impelled by that mysterious power which comes from beyond the clouds maybe for most part the commonest kind of clay a creature in no wise to be worshipped the eagle which soars so proudly at the sun will return to its airy with drooping wing the condor whose shadow falls from afar on chimborazo's alabaster brow cannot live always in the empyrean a thing ethereal and back to earth is no better than a carrion crow to genius more than aught else perhaps distance lends enchantment while we see only the bold outlines of the titan we are content to worship nay insist upon it but having scrutinized him inch by inch with a microscope we realize that familiarity breeds contempt well does christ say that a prophet is not without honor save in his own country which is the origin of the hero and ballet adage i cannot understand why the world insists upon seeing the grand monarchy in his nightcap and carlyle in his chimney corner with the harem of byron and the drunken orgies of burns the poaching of shakespeare and the vanity of voltaire it has nothing to do it should content itself with what they have freely given it the intellectual heritage they have left to humanity and not pry into those frailties which they fain would hide if goldsmith wrote like an angel and talked like a fool it was because when he wielded the pen there was only a wise man present and all are affected more or less by the company they keep we care not whether the gold in our coffers was mined by saint or sinner so that it be standard coin then what boots it what manner of men stole from heaven that promethean fire which surges in the poet's song leaps in lightning flash from the orator's lips or becomes dark with excess of bright in carlyle's natural supernaturalism judge ye the work and let the workman growl like a collie dog if it eases dyspepsia that carlyle was an undignified human being i can well believe for he was the wisest of his day and dignity is the distinguishing characteristic of the dodo and the donkey if mr goss esteems it so highly he might procure a pot of glue and adorn his vermiform appendix with a few peacock feathers else take lessons in posturing from the turkey gobbler or editor of the houston post 
Had Carlyle been born a long-eared ass, he might have been fully approved, if not altogether appreciated, by Goss, Frude, and other critic flies. When Dr. Samuel Johnson was told that Boswell proposed to write his life, he threatened to prevent it by taking that of his would-be biographer. It were curious to consider what crabbed old Carlyle would have done had he suspected the danger of falling into the hands of a literary backstairs Mrs. Grundy like Edmund Gauss. In his heroes and hero worship, he treated his colossi far otherwise than he in turn has been treated by Gauss and Frude. He first recognized the fact that they were colossi and no fit subject for the microscope. We hear nothing from him to remind us of Lemuel Gulliver's disgust with the yawning pores and unseemly blotches of the epidermis of that monster Brobdingnagian maid who set him astride her nipple. He reverenced them because they possessed more than the average of that intellect strength which is not only of God, but is God. Then considered their life work as a whole, its efficient cause and ultimate consequence. He does not appear to have thought to inquire whether they had dyspepsia and how it affected them, being engrossed in that more important question, bees, what ideas were possessed withal, and wrought out, and what part these eminent volitions of the lords of intellect played in the mighty drama of human life. It is not my present purpose to review Carlyle's literary labors. That were like crowding the Bard of Avon into a magazine article. For three hundred years the world has been studying the latter, and is not yet sure that it understands him. Yet Shakespeare is to Carlyle what a graded turnpike is to a tortuous mountain path. The former deals chiefly with the visible, the latter with the intangible. The first tells us what men did, the last seeks to learn why they did it. Carlyle is the prince of critics. He is often lenient to a fault, but seldom deceived. Looks quite through the shows of things into things themselves. Uriel, keenest of vision mid all the host of heaven, is his guardian angel. To follow him into the sanctuaries of great souls and become familiar with all their hopes and fears, to pass the portals of masterminds and watch the gradual evolution of great ideas in these cyclopean workshops, to mount the hill of Mirza and from it view the tide of time rushing ever into the illimitable sea of eternity, and comprehend the meaning of that mighty farce tragedy enacted on the bridge of life, were scarce so easy as listening to the buzzing of the critic fly, or dawdling over a French novel on a summer's day. Carlyle's frankly called a mystic, and mystagogue he certainly is, a man who interprets mysteries. If the average reader urged that his interpretation is too often obscurum per obscurius, he might reply in the language of that other woefully undignified and shockingly impolite human being, Dr. Johnson, I am bound to find you in reason, sir, but not in brains. Carlyle was regarded by those writers of his day who clung to and revered the time-worn ruts as chief of the spasmodic school. 
the members whereof were supposed to be distinguished by a stained and unnatural style. This school, which was satirized by Atune while editor of Blackwood's magazine, was thought to include Tennyson, Gilfillan, and other popular authors of the time. I incline to the view that no writer of whom we have any knowledge exhibits less affectation in the matter of style than does the subject of this essay. It is rugged and massive, but so is his mind. It were impossible to imagine the author of Sartre Resartus and the French Revolution expressing himself in the carefully rounded periods of Macaulay, whose prose is half poetry and whose poetry is all prose. Carlyle seems to care precious little what kind of vehicle he uses for the conveyance of ideas so long as it does not break down. All his labor smells of the lamp, but the midnight oil, of which our modern ready writers evidently use so little, was consumed in considering what to say rather than how to say it. Not even Shakespeare possesses so extensive a vocabulary. The technical terms of every profession and subdivision of science come trippingly to his tongue. But even the dictionary is not large enough for him, and he extends it this way and that, his daring neology creating consternation among the critic flies and other ephemera. He wrote as he thought, hence his style could not be other than natural. That of a tune was formed in the schools, principally modeled by masters, made to fit a procrustean bed, and was therefore eminently artificial. If we apply the term unnatural to the matter instead of the manner of Carlyle and Tennyson, then away with genius, for intellectual originality is tabooed. No man is privileged to think his own thoughts. That is a law nowadays nowhere except in the sanctum of the Galdal News, where Colonel Jenkins takes the editorial airs and teaches it to soar an exact imitation of himself. Whether by the spasmodic method or otherwise, Carlyle dragged more true orients out of the depths than did any of his contemporaries. And that is saying much, for there were giants in those days, and they were neither few nor far between. The intellectual glory of the first half of the present century was scarce eclipsed by the Elizabethan era. It was in every truth a feast of reason and a flow of soul. Goethe and Jean Paul were putting the finishing touches to their work while Carlyle, then a young man, was striving to interpret these so strange appearances to the English-speaking world, to hammer some small appreciation of German literature into the autotheistic British head. Tom Moore, sweetest of mere singers, and Lord Byron, prince of poets, were but five and seven years respectively his seniors. He saw the beginning and the end of their literary labors, as of those of Macaulay and Mill, Darwin, Disraeli, and Dickens. Much of his best work is done ere the death of Walter Scott, and he might have played as a schoolboy with the ill-fated Shelley. He had just begun his long life labor when Longfellow and Tennyson, Hugo, and Wagner came upon the scene, 
and together they wrought wisely and well in the mighty seed-field which is the world. What a galaxy of intellectual gods! Now, all gone, returned home to high Olympus, the weird land left to the Alfred Austins, the William Dean Howells, and the Ian McLarens. Gone, but not forgotten. Yet the world will in time forget. Even the amaranthine flowers must fade. Of them all we see but the star that blazes the brighter as the years run on, and that one long mistaken for a mere erratic comet, sans substance, or uninformed nebula hanging like a splotch of semi-luminous vapor in a great void. Year by year the voice of Carlyle rings clearer and clearer from the eternal silence. And as we listen with rapt attention to the music of the spheres becoming audible, intelligible to our dull ear, the Waterloo and Lisbon earthquakes, the revolutions and the warring religions, all glory and shame, the wild loves and bitter hatreds of humanity, even birth and death, but minor notes in the grand symphony, the harmony of infinitude, the little man who has undertaken the management of the microphone, without suspecting its significance, distracts us with the unwished-for and utterly useless information that the voice coming from beyond time and space, out of the everlasting deep, once growled like a collie dog. End of chapter 16. Thomas Carlyle. Recording by Scotty Smith.